Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. To begin this morning with a little bit of a, a non-scientific straw poll, all right? So we're going to have three options. The three options that you're going to have are Dennis Phillips, Mike's weather page, or C, none of the above. This is a question about where are you getting your hurricane information from? So if you're a Dennis Phillips person, can I see some hands? We got some, we got some Dennis Phillips people, okay? Some Mike's Weather page, also known as SpaghettiModels.com. All right, well, yeah, we got a couple of those folks. How about a C, none of these above? I like somebody else, yeah. Some, some people who are missing Steve Jervy, I appreciate that. Living in the cone of uncertainty like we are is filled with, well, you know, uncertainty. It's filled with a question about where we are going, a question about what these next few days are going to become for us. And so whenever these hurricanes threaten us, we all of a sudden become very interested, very engaged with all sorts of weather phenomena that we didn't know before. All of a sudden, all of us are, well, you know, I think the jet stream is really going to drop down, and that high-pressure system is going to exert some, some westward flow on that. And we all have these hot-take opinions on meteorology that we really don't know about, and we're just parroting something that some guy on the internet probably said. In some cases, some guy who literally runs a weather station out of his garage. No shade, just a little odd. If you haven't been here for a while, if this is your first hurricane scare, you're probably discovering new things about your house that you have never seen before. Some of you went outside because you called a veteran of the hurricane world and you found spikes all around your windows and somebody told you that's the spikes that you attach things to. That's the spikes that you can put plywood up and you were shocked. You were amazed that your house had just such a thing to take care of this. Others of you are wondering how to find plywood or water or ice. That's what we do. We sit around and we wait till 11 and 5 and then 11 and 5 for the NHC to update its cone. Well, as we think about this, as we think about hurricanes, as we live through this moment, as a Christian, I can't uh, help but remember, I can't, I can't forget, to be honest, about 15 years ago. I don't remember exactly when it was. I don't remember exactly what storm it was. But I remember vividly uh, a TV preacher uh, named Pat Robertson decided to go on the airwaves and say that whatever city was about to get hit by this hurricane was going to get hit because of this particular laundry list of sins that this city had. And God is throwing this hurricane at them. And I remember at the time rolling my eyes and thinking, that guy is so bonkers. That guy is so crazy. I mean, the, Jesus is incredibly clear. The rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. The, the sort of mathematical equation of the number of Christians and the number of non-Christians who are hit by a hurricane is equitable. There is no way that you can avoid a hurricane just by living a more moral life. And yet, there's a tension here, isn't there? 
There's a tension that we as Christians live with. What is the dominant force controlling a hurricane? In our case, Hurricane Ian. Is it the finger of God or is it a high pressure system? Is it the hand of the creator or is it the jet stream? And the answer that we have to live with is both. The answer that we have to live with is that both of those things can be true at the same time. Yes, there are natural explanations for many phenomena. Afterwards, all of the meteorologists are going to tell us exactly why the hurricane hit where it hit. But there is also a God who is sovereign over all of the creation, where not a bird falls from the sky without him knowing. Two weeks ago, as we looked at the plagues that God brought onto Egypt, we saw that God is capable of undoing the things that he did in creation, that so many of the things that happened during the plagues were the undoing of creation, and he brought that chaos upon Egypt. But those plagues that we read about and the miracle at the Red Sea that we're going to talk about today are not just natural occurrences. It doesn't just happen that God led the people of Egypt to just the right place where he knew something neat was about to happen. They are divinely ordered spiritual events. And so what we need to do as Christians as people of faith, is we need to understand that the natural world and the spiritual world are bound up together. They're united in a way that goes beyond our understanding. Over and over, as we read the story of God throughout the Bible, one of the things that we see, especially in Exodus, is that the purpose of these things, the reason for all of these things that happen in Exodus and in so many other places of the Bible, is to reveal the character and power of God. It's easy for us to get caught up in sort of the, the fun and interesting stories, the cinematic moments that are great, but what's really going on here is God is showing us his character and power. And so while there are parts of the stories that we can read, where we can find ourselves, where we may even find application, even more than that, as we read a story like the story of God parting the Red Sea for the people of Israel, what we're reading is a story about who God is. And so I want you to see that. I want you to listen for that this morning as we read Exodus chapter 14. If you're able, I invite you to please stand. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 14. Uh, you can follow along with me if you have a Bible with you. Um, if not, that's okay. We've, we'll have it on the screen behind me. So let's hear God's word this morning. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Sephron. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host." And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done? 
that we have let Israel go from serving us so that he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped by the sea, by Pi-Haharoth, in front of Baal-Zephron. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have, we, what have you done to us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go out after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the water being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptian, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. As the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen and all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. 
City Church is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So the people of Israel have left the land of Egypt. They are being guided by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. And they are making their way to the land that God promised to Abraham, making their way to the Holy Land. But the first thing that we notice as we read through this story is that they're not taking the direct route. God does not send them on what one day will be called the King's Highway. It's only a few days walk from Egypt all the way up to Israel. They border one another. God sends them in a different direction. He sends them to Pi-Haharoth, uh, which I have to say several more times, and to Baal Zephon, which I have trouble not saying Zephron as if it's a famous actor. And it's tough to, in our minds to read these and kind of go, ah, yes, Pi-Haharoth, ah, yes, the good old town of Pi-Haharoth, I know all about that one. It's tough for us to even find them if we were to look on a map because those aren't the modern city names. Those are the ancient city names. And so we have at best conjecture about where these places are. What we do know is God sends Israel on the long route. He sends them on the non-direct route somewhere down the coast of the Red Sea. While we don't know exactly where these places are, the Bible is pretty descriptive of the kind of place that they are, of where God is leading them. Because the place that God leads them is a place that butts up against the Red Sea with mountains to the north and south. That means that the only way into this valley is from the east, from the land of Egypt. So God leads them into this valley, and then something happens. Pharaoh is going to come and get them. But why did God do this? Why did God lead them into this valley where they are up against the wall, up, up against the wall of the Red Sea with no way out? Because sometimes when we're following God, things are going to get worse before they get better. Pharaoh comes to his senses. Pharaoh wakes up. Pharaoh's told, hey, they're not taking the king's highway. They're going the long way. And Pharaoh decides, wait a minute, I just lost 600,000 people that I used to enslave. And I just let them leave? I, no, new plan. I take it back. And he gets all of his horsemen and all of his chariots and all of the people that he can muster. He musters the entire army, gears them up and sends them out. Now, for many of us, like chariots feel old timey, you know, that old tech alert. They feel like, oh yeah, that's the thing that like in the Ben-Hur movie that they have the races and we don't think much about that. But in ancient times, as the people of Israel were living in, as in this moment in history, a chariot was the peak of military technology. It was the best thing that militaries could have. And Pharaoh has tons of them. And Egypt is a dominant global military power. And with the most technologically advanced military at the time, he begins, begins to pursue Israel. That's why the geography matters, because the most advanced and mighty army in the world at the time has the people of Israel penned with mountains north of them, mountains south of them, a sea to the west, 
and Egypt approaching from the east. By following God's command, by following God's direction, this pillar of fire, this pillar of cloud, by following God into this place, they have trapped themselves. God has led the people of Israel into a trap. So what does Israel do? They look around and they see the sea to one side, the mountains all around, and the army of Egypt coming. And so what do they do? Well, they do what they will do several other times as we go through the book of Exodus. They cry out to God. They're terrified. You would be too. The greatest army in the world is bearing down on you. You're a ragtag bunch of recently enslaved people, and the greatest army of the world is about to attack you. They cry out to the Lord. They cry out to Moses. But their cries aren't cries of faith. They're actually really sarcastic. I don't know if you caught it as we read through there. The people of Israel say, and they're gonna, they, they say this a bunch in Exodus. <sighs> what? Were there not enough graves in Egypt, and so you had to bring us out into the wilderness to let us die? Which, which is pretty dark. Like, I know we have a lot of millennials who are into dark humor, right? But this is even dark for them, because you think about the land of Egypt. What dominates the landscape of Egypt? I mean, stands like mountains over the entire place. The pyramids. The pyramids are giant graves. There are cities in Egypt that are the cities of the dead, entire cities dedicated to burial, dedicated to graves. And the people of Israel are like, oh, what, there wasn't enough graves back there? There wasn't enough, so we had to come out here to die? Instead of responding in faith, they're responding in sarcasm. And they voice this to Moses, and they voice this to God. But Moses isn't shaken. As the people of Israel begin to panic, begin to cry out, begin to get sarcastic, Moses stands up and is direct. He is clear. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. Watch, because you are about to see the salvation that God has promised. The Egyptians that you see coming at you, that army that will certainly, you think, destroy you, by tomorrow morning, every one of them is going to be dead. You need only to be silent. It's kind of an interesting phrase for him to end his kind of pep talk with, isn't it? Right? You, you, when you hear of a, like a great military pep talk, that's not how they typically end. All you have to do is be quiet. No, we want to rouse people up. Get your weapons. And Moses says, no, 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 be quiet. I want to dig in on that in just a second, because when we read that, the first time we read that, it's easy for us to think that he's trying to comfort them. You need only to be silent, like the way that we're kind of, you know, when you're trying to quiet a baby. But that's not what he's saying. This isn't a word of comfort. This isn't a statement of, of it's going to be okay. Moses is actually chiding the people of Israel. He's actually kind of saying, you're doing it wrong. What Moses is saying is a lot more direct. He, it could easily be translated, shut your mouths and watch. 
It reminds me a little bit, if you uh, were aware of wrestling in the 90s, you may remember the rise of The Rock, of Dwayne Johnson and his kind of over-the-top character. And in the 90s, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock's catchphrase that he always would shout at his fellow wrestlers was, know your role and shut your mouth. This is how he would taunt his opponents. And in many ways, what Moses is telling the people of Israel as they stand with the greatest army in the world attacking them, hemmed in by mountains and a sea behind them is know your role and shut your mouth. Israel, you have seen God work 10 consecutive plagues. You have seen the way that God has miraculously passed over your houses, how he has struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians. You have seen the way that the Egyptian people gave you all of their jewels, gave you all of their fine clothing, and now you're panicking. Now you're in this sarcastic, panicky thing. No, God wants them to stand still and watch because God is about to do something. You know, there's something that's really true about this feeling that Israel was getting that is true in our lives as well. When we look around at what we're going through, when we look around at our life situation, there are so many things that can seem insurmountable. So many things that we don't know how to deal with. And the response that we have to these problems, the response that we have to chaos is often a lot like the people of Israel. Most of the time, what you and I do is we grasp for power and control when what we really need is steadfast reliance and resolute trust in God, the God who has already brought us to this point. Think about, think about these things. Think about your busyness, your stress, and your frustration. What is the source of those things? Where do those things come from? What things make those feel like more? How much of your busyness, stress, and frustration is brought on by by our attempt to fill God's role? We are busy running around because we think we can control our financial situation when a hurricane can evaporate that. We are stressed because we feel out of control and our kids aren't behaving the way that we want. Our kids aren't achieving the way that we want them to. We're frustrated because God has led us to a place where we can't be comfortable, where we're forced to trust. Some of us, many of us, most of us, in moments like Israel was facing and like we face in our day-to-day lives, instead of responding with resolute and steadfast trust in the power of God who has brought us through so many things already, respond with a panicky and sarcastic cry to God. But God is not going to leave us or the people of Israel to die. He is going to show them who he is. He tells Moses to lift up his staff and lift up his hand over the sea so that he might split it. Now, notice as we read through that Moses never like smacks the Red Sea with his staff. 
and that the process of the Red Sea becoming dry ground isn't instantaneous. It says that the wind blows all through the night and that they go across in the early morning. Those things are really good for movies, like Charlton Heston smacking the water with, you know, the Prince of Egypt. That looks good on film, but it's not actually what Exodus records for us as what happened. No, Moses lifts up his staff and his hands, and over the course of the night, the east wind piles the sea up with walls on both sides and dry ground in the middle. And while this is happening, that pillar of fire and cloud that has been God's present throughout this moves in between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. And somehow it creates a curtain where the Egyptians can't make their way to the Israelites and the Israelites can't make their way to the Egyptians. It stands in between them. There's two things I want to point out to you about the actual miracle of the splitting of the Red Sea. The first one is that it is a natural and supernatural phenomenon. Do you notice that the Bible gives language and description for both of those? On the one hand, there is an eastern wind that causes the sea to do this. The Bible says so. On the other hand, it does this and the wind starts when Moses raises his hand and his staff. They are both true. We can't divide the natural and the supernatural because a supernatural God created all of the natural world and order that we live in. God is the Lord of heaven and earth. Everything that happens, both in our spiritual lives and our physical lives, happens because God wills it to Whether it is the physical or the spiritual, whether it is the natural or the supernatural, natural. And related to that, the second thing I want you to see is that God is the one who is doing all the work in this passage. What is Israel told to do? Be silent. What is Moses told to do? Hold up your hands, which is almost nothing. I'm doing it right now, and it is having almost no effect on you or the seats in front of me. This is not, effect- this is not an effective war strategy. Who is at work in this passage? Who is doing everything? God. God protects Israel with the pillar of fire and cloud. God splits the Red Sea. It's God who, after Israel has passed through, slams that same sea over top of the Egyptian army, drowning every one of them. It is God who is at work. God is the one that saves Israel. Nobody can take credit. Nobody even gets partial credit for this besides God himself. Beloved, as we read this story, what I want you to see is that God is so committed. God is so passionate about saving his people that he will undo the natural order in order to make it happen. It's really interesting because the language that that is used about the splitting of the Red Sea is actually language that goes back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, in the creation story, it's, the Bible says that God piles up the water together in order to create the land. And in this story, at the Red Sea, God divides the water so that his people might go through. It's the same idea, it's just in reverse. 
God decides to save Israel and the water piles up on Egypt after they go through. God divides the waters and then he piles the waters up. Israel is now a free people on the way to a new land. God is recreating his people in this moment. God is going back through the creation story, giving them new life. God is going to break any natural law that he chooses in order to secure his people. God will do anything to show his glory. And Egypt and Israel, by the end of this story, know who the ruler of the world is. It is very clear to everybody involved and God gets all the glory because God did all the work. And so the chapter ends with Israel now on the eastern shore of the Red Sea. Israel looking out across the sea of drowned bodies of the entire army that had enslaved them. The evil taskmasters who forced them to drown their sons in the Nile now themselves are drowned in the Red Sea. And as the bodies begin to wash ashore, Israel saw the great power of God. And what does Exodus say that the people felt in that moment? What are they thinking? It's the same time. It's the same thing that they felt a little bit earlier, about 12 hours before. Israel is afraid. Israel fears God. And it's easy for us to want to soften that fear. It's easy for us to want to go, well, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's all, and that's just about it. No, they see God. They see his power, and it is terrifying. This would be like us, the sort of the feeling we get when we watch the kind of movies that come out this time of year, the kind of movies that come out during spooky season. I don't watch those movies. I don't mess with horror movies because I'm scared, okay? That same sort of terror that we feel when we watch those movies is the sort of fear that Israel experienced. Fear of the Lord is knowing and seeing your rightful place in the world, your rightful place in the universe compared to the power of God. When Israel saw him drown the greatest army in the world at the time, with the snap of his finger, they were filled with fear. But here's what's different about fear of the Lord from our normal type of fear when we're afraid of something else. Fear is typically debilitating and destructive. It leads us to panic and to uncertainty. But the fear of the Lord does something else. As we read Exodus, the fear of the Lord was constructive in the people of Israel because the fear of the Lord led to their belief. In that order, as the people of Israel stand on the eastern shore, in the very last verse of the chapter, Israel saw the great power of the Lord against the Egyptians, and so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Their fear of the Lord led them to greater trust. Fear of the Lord is the antidote to our busyness, to our stress. 
and to our lack of control. Even when God brings us between a rock and a hard place, he is good and he does good. Even if he were to lead us through the valley where the shadow of death is, we don't have to fear any evil because he is with us. The good shepherd is Lord there too. And so as we read a chapter like this, as we see who God reveals himself to be, as we see the the nearly terrifying awe of our creator God, it ought to create a deeper faith and a deeper dependence on him. Because as we read this story of God crashing the natural and the supernatural together, it is also the story of Jesus. Jesus, who broke all the laws of biology to be born of a virgin named Mary and then died a death where the natural punishment coming from an evil empire was overlapping and coinciding with the supernatural wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus that we deserved. And then God showed his ultimate supernatural power in the world by reversing death itself. The most natural of things that all of us humans have experienced since the fall God undoes in Jesus. And this Jesus who has been raised from the dead invites us to new life, invites us to the Eastern shore. On the Eastern shore where we live as a new people on our way to a new land, one flowing with milk and honey, one where we will be in his presence forever. Beloved, the creator God has slammed the supernatural and natural world together in order that you might see him, in order that you might fear him, in order that you might believe in him so that we might be with him. And so his call to us in the face of that is what? Fear not. Stand firm. Behold the salvation that God has worked in our lives. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Let's pray.